Well, today we are going to continue in our series from the book of Acts, where we're going to read about some encounters that the apostle Peter had, one of which was a very eye-opening experience for this fisherman now turned apostle. A few weeks ago, we read about how Peter visited Samaria and he went to help Philip in his work there. Well, apparently after that, Peter began an itinerant ministry among the dispersed Christians in Judea. And in Lydda, which was a town about 25 miles from, Jer- from Jerusalem, God used him to heal a crippled man named Aeneas who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Well, then Peter's second encounter was with a devout woman named Dorcas who was living in a town north of there called Joppa. But Dorcas wasn't just sick. Dorcas had actually died. And when her friends had learned that Peter was in the area, they summoned him. And when Peter arrived, he got down on his knees to pray and he called out for the woman to get up. And she did as God raised her back to life. And we see in Acts 9, verse 42, it says this, this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. So Peter was having a wonderful ministry trip thus far. But as we begin to read in the 10th chapter of Acts, we learn something about Peter. Peter himself was ill. But Peter's illness was not physical. And he wasn't the only person that was inflicted with this illness. It was very widespread. You see, Peter and many of his fellow Jewish believers suffered from a particular plague of ignorance. It is something that has hurt many millions of people over the millennia. In fact, many people still suffer from this same malady today because it poisons their mind and it clouds their thinking. I'm referring to the plague known as prejudice. And as I mentioned, Peter and most Jewish believers of his day were greatly affected by it. You see, they believed as Jews, as God's chosen people, they were better than everyone else. It was their conviction that everyone could become a Christian, but they first had to become a Jew. Now I wanna back up just a bit because I wanna define this illness as simply as I know how to. Prejudice in any form is basically a preconceived judgment. It's the act of classifying people in one way or another and then generalizing our thoughts and our actions toward them accordingly. And the sad truth is almost all people people suffer from some strain of this evil, this plague of ignorance called prejudice. In fact, let's do a little self-diagnosis right now to help you to see if you are afflicted in any way. What images come to your mind When you think about whites, blacks, Hispanics, or Asians, do you lump them all together in one group of having lesser value or lesser importance than you? Do you ever categorize people 
and draw conclusions by the clothes they wear, the tattoos etched on their body, or the way that they wear their hair? Have you ever allowed this to create a wall of division between you and them? I once heard a lady in this church many, many years ago when a woman walked down the aisle with colored hair say, would you look at that? Here's a touchy one. Do you lump people together according to their political party? Do you think all Republicans are like this and all Democrats are like that? Do you make assumptions about people who choose to homeschool their kids or choose to send their kids to public school? How do you feel about people who've experienced a moral failure in their life? Do you make assumptions about their future behavior based on their past mistakes and actions? Are you prejudiced towards someone who has gone through a divorce? Are you prejudiced towards someone who has spent time in a penitentiary? Do you place a stigma on anyone who has at one time or the other dealt with mental illness in some form? Here's a good one. Do you assume that because someone belongs to another religious Christian denomination that they're probably not as close to the Lord as you are and they probably could not or have not experienced the Holy Spirit in the way that you have? Or try this one on for size. Do you ever view yourself better than someone else because you're a Christian and they're not? And what I wanna say about that is we are taught to hate sin, but you cannot let someone's sinful lifestyle make you hate the person because they are a person who are lost and blinded and they need Jesus Christ. And so if we run around thinking we're better than people who aren't saved, we're not gonna save anybody or bring anyone into the kingdom. I think as you can see, we all from time to time suffer from some form of prejudice. And understand, prejudice in any form is indeed a disabling ailment because it blinds us to the truth. It's like being in a smoke-filled room, unable to see through all of the negative preconceptions that we carry around about certain types of people. And the truth is that Christians should never embrace this evil way of thinking. We of all people should know better than this. Chuck Colson once said, certainly evil is to be expected in a fallen world. What is not expected is for a holy people to accept it. So once we realize we are infected with prejudice, we should immediately seek treatment. Now, one thing that medical professionals do whenever they come upon an infection is they study that disease as to know how to treat it. And in a sense, that's what we're gonna do this morning as we study Peter's particular form of this disease. And what was that? It was his prejudice and the Jews' prejudice toward Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew, you're a Gentile. And there was a great prejudice against Gentiles. Perhaps our study this morning will help us find healing for our own strain, whatever it may be, of this malady. And I think the first logical question becomes, how did this ailment that plagued so many of the Jews in Peter's day actually get started? 
Well, like all forms of prejudice, this one was taught. Peter had learned this prejudice toward Gentiles from his parents, and not just his parents, but his peers, all in his community, his Jewish community. You see, they believed that anyone other than a Jew or anything touched by anyone other than a Jew was unclean. It was much like the game of cooties that we used to play when we were children. But this was no game because from childhood, Peter had been taught to despise anything Gentile. Author Alfred Edersheim does a great job describing the extent of this inbred prejudice that the Jews like Peter had held against Gentiles. Listen to what he wrote. Every Gentile child so soon as born was to be regarded as unclean. The Mishnah goes so far as to forbid aid to a Gentile mother in the hour of her need or nourishment for her baby in order not to bring up another child for idolatry. It was not considered safe to leave cattle in their charge, to allow their women to nurse Jewish infants or their physicians to attend the sick, nor to walk in their company. They and theirs were defiled, their houses unclean, as containing idols or things dedicated to them, their very contact was polluted by idolatry. Milk drawn by a heathen, if a Jew had not been present to watch it, was unclean. Bread and oil prepared by them was unlawful. Their wine was, to was wholly forbidden. The mere touch of a heathen polluted a whole cask, even to put one's nose to heathen wine was strictly prohibited. So you've got to realize, folks, that this prejudice was so strong that most Jews would have nothing to do whatsoever with a Gentile. They would not be guests in Gentiles' homes, nor would they allow a Gentile into their homes. Dirt that came from Gentile countries was considered defiled. And before a Jew would cross over the border of Israel, they would knock off their sandals so that the earth would not fall on theirs. Jews would not eat food prepared by Gentiles. Cooking utensils from a Gentile had to be purified before being used. Jews at that time even had huge pools called mikvahs. Imagine a swimming pool in your backyard that was designated for washing Gentile furniture like tables and chairs before Jews could safely use them. In short, Gentiles were considered completely unclean and their presence defiling. That describes you and me, we're Gentiles. Now you may remember in our study, we talked about how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. But understand, as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans, it was nothing in comparison to their feelings towards Gentiles. I guess they thought at least a Samaritan was a half Jew. So here, what's interesting about this, here we have Peter, who is not just a Christian, but one of the 12 that Jesus said, come and follow me, but he was still thinking like a Jew. 
And as I said earlier, he actually believed God could not save a Gentile as a Gentile. He believed that a person needed to clean themselves up by becoming a Jew, and then God would save him. And I might say people in the church have this same kind of a mindset, that somebody needs to clean themselves up first, then they become a Christian, and then we accept them. Now that is wrong. They come in in whatever situation, whatever lifestyle, whatever case they are in, and we love them to the Lord. Now you may be thinking, Pastor, what about the Gentiles in the Old Testament who God used? What about Rahab from Jericho or Ruth from Moab? Well, if you're thinking that, let me commend you because that's really smart. That's sharp on your part. Because both of these these Gentiles, they became heroes of Judaism. But I hate to put a little mess in your armor here, but only after embracing the Jewish faith. Do you remember Ruth's bold affirmation to her mother-in-law when she said, your people shall be my people and your God, my God? In other words, folks, Ruth became a Jew and so did Rahab. So to fully comprehend this chapter of church history, you gotta understand this hatred of Gentiles was deeply ingrained, not just in Peter, but in many of the other Jewish believers who had come to know Jesus Christ. And I hope this morning that we all clearly understand that prejudice is powerful, but I'm gonna take it a step further and tell you that prejudice is sin. Because prejudice prevents you from giving someone a chance. Why? Because you're so biased against them that you don't even believe that a possible, that that a positive outcome is even possible. And prejudice always puts you above someone else. Why? Because in your tainted heart, you can't fathom that they might be equal with you. When in God's eyes, they are no different than you are. And once you are taught to embrace this kind of poison thinking, it's very difficult to stop being prejudiced. And we see this in in Peter's situation. It's much easier to start hating someone based upon your prejudice than it is to stop. Perhaps that's because we are fallen creatures and we have a bent towards sinful behavior. And that's one reason that a prejudice is an illness that's difficult to cure. Because just like healing instantly that man who had been crippled for eight years or bringing Dorcas back to life from death, to heal prejudice, it requires the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit of God. Well, the good news is that the Holy Spirit was already working on. He was already treating Peter. In fact, Acts 9 shows us that he was making some progress because while in Joppa, he was the house guest of a tanner by the name of Simon. And this was great progress because tanners were considered unclean by Jewish rabbis because their line of work forced them to touch dead animals. In their minds, that made them unclean. I mean, Simon the Tanner would have been shunned by the local synagogue. But since he was a believer, Peter accepted him. 
So Peter was moving in the right direction, even though he had a long way to go before he experienced complete recovery. Well, right around Acts chapter nine, verse 32, Luke takes us from Joppa, where Peter was staying, to Caesarea, about 30 miles north of there. Caesarea was the headquarters for the Roman procurator, and a cohort, a cohort consisted of about 600 seasoned soldiers that were stationed there, not to just protect the man, but to also keep order. Now, a Roman cohort was divided into 100 men, and in charge of each one of those groups was a non-commissioned officer called a centurion. Yay. That was great, great timing. Centurions were held in high esteem in that ancient world because they were the backbone of the Roman army. One historian wrote this, centurions are required not to be bold and adventurous so much as good leaders of steady and prudent mind, not prone to take the offensive or start fighting wantonly, but able to over, but able when overwhelmed and hard pressed to stand fast and die at their post. And this is not the only time that we meet a centurion in the New Testament. And whenever they are mentioned, they are always held in high regard. You may remember a centurion came into contact with Jesus in Matthew chapter nine. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in all of Israel with such great faith. Well, in Acts chapter 10, and you can find your way there because that's where we're gonna be reading from here in a little bit. In Acts chapter 10, we meet a centurion like this whose name is Cornelius and who possessed, who possessed great faith in our God, the God of Israel. And Luke refers to Cornelius as a God-fearer. This meant that although he worshiped Jehovah, he had not been circumcised so as to become a full-fledged Jew. God-fearers like this man were allowed to attend synagogue, but they had to sit in the back, reminiscent of what happened to African-Americans in our own nation in the 50s and 60s when they were required to sit in the back of not just the bus, but of the church or in the balcony of the church as far away from the white people as possible. Anyway, unlike most Romans who were polytheistic, meaning worshiping many different gods, Cornelius chose to serve the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of the Jews. And it was not just in word, but it was in deed as well. See, Cornelius was a godly man. He was a true seeker who, who sincerely desired not to only know about God, but to know God. And God responded to his seeking by sending an angel to him. And he said this in Acts 10, verses four through six. Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Well, as a soldier, obviously Cornelius knew how to obey commands and orders. So he immediately called two of his servants and another God-fearing soldier, and he dispatched them all to Simon's house in Joppa. Well, at that precise moment, Peter was 30 miles south in Joppa on the roof and he was praying about lunchtime. 
And while he was waiting for the meal to be prepared, God gave him a vision. It's like he fell into some kind of a trance, but God gave him a vision. And it was a vision that I'm sure many of you have read about before. Peter saw what looked like a four-cornered sheet kind of coming down out of the sky. And it was filled with all kinds of animals which represented all different kinds of food. But not all of them were what the Jews considered kosher. There was ham and lobster and other meat that would have been considered unclean by the Jews of that day. And Peter heard a voice from heaven who said this in Acts 10, 13, get up, Peter, kill and eat, referring to the food. And Peter answered in verse 14, surely not, Lord. Peter replied, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. But the Lord responded in verse 15 and said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And just like how often multiple rounds of antibiotics are required to kill a certain bacteria, God had to repeat this vision, if you read it, three times before Peter began to see through this prejudice of his and begin to understand. And just as Peter was beginning to understand and start thinking, okay, I I think I get it. Four corners of a sheet means the, the four corners of the earth and that all people are equal in God's sight. Well, just when these thoughts were starting to enter his head, there was a knock on the door. And God said in verses 19 and 20, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. And remember, these three men were Gentiles. So what God was really saying was, Simon Peter, guess who's coming to dinner? Now in his response to this surprise company, Peter showed he was indeed beginning to heal, that God's treatment was working on him because Peter did something that no Jew would ever do. He invited those three unclean Gentiles into his house. Most Jews would have said, nice to meet you, probably wouldn't even have shaken their hand, and and, and they would have said, let's go out and talk on the street, or you know there's a Motel 6 just outside of town that you can go and stay in. But instead, Peter invited them in to be his guest, and he even gave them lodging for the night. And the next morning, Peter and some of the Jewish Christians joined the three Gentiles and they all headed towards Cornelius's house in Caesarea. This was probably the first time that Peter had journeyed with Gentiles. And I imagine as he's walking along with these guys, he's thinking, hey, these Gentiles are no different than we are. They're just like I am. They just have a classification that's different than mine. And then when they arrived, Peter showed another indication that he had indeed embraced God's way of thinking because if you look at verse 25 and 26, it says, as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell on his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. He said, stand up. I am only a man myself. I also want you to know that Cornelius was ready for Peter. According to verse 27, he had gathered a large group of people to hear what Peter had to say. He apparently calculated how long it would take Peter to get there, and he brought in a house 
full of seekers who were waiting and who were hungry to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And this should always teach us something that I've really been trying to impress upon you over the next last six weeks or so. God always goes before us in our witnessing encounters. He always does. We are never on our own when we share our faith. Because as Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws them. And as Peter learned when he arrived, many people in Caesarea had been responding to God's drawing. Well, when they sat down, Cornelius explained the visit from the angel four days prior, and that's where I'd like us to start reading. So if you have a Bible, turn to Acts 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 through 48. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Then Peter said, or excuse me, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know, the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. So excuse me, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Well, as you can see here, Peter presented a basic gospel message and Cornelius and his friends responded by putting their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this puzzled the Jews who were with Peter because they realized something very important here. They knew that if the Holy Spirit had fallen upon these Gentiles, which he had, that they had indeed become Christians. Their minds had been thinking that these Gentiles needed to become Jews first, and in their minds, that included for the males among them to even be circumcised. So like Peter, their prejudice was healed, and they learned that God is really no respecter of persons. 
So how did God do this? I mean, what exactly was his treatment? How did he cure Peter and his friends from this mental malady? Well, the fact is, God patiently led them to understand three basic truths. And they are the same truths that you and I need to embrace if we are to be healed of our own little prejudice that we hold on to, if we are to be freed from this kind of thinking. If you'll remember, it was Jesus who said in John 8, 32, then you will know the truth. And what will the truth do? It will set you free. So let's quickly review these three liberating truths that Peter and his peers learned. And number one is this, God loves all people the same. And if you think otherwise, my friend, you have twisted thinking. You're wrong. If you think you're God's favorite, if you think God loves you more than somebody else, you're wrong. You see, to be freed of this prejudice, Peter had to realize that God's love is intended for all people. And that the Jews were indeed chosen, but they were chosen to tell the entire world of God's grace. I mean, in the same way that an older child has to learn that his parents love his younger siblings just as much as they love him, Peter had to realize that he lo- God loves all people in this world equally. Well, this is where the attitude went totally wrong with many of the Jews in the first century. They knew that they were God's chosen people, but they erroneously thought that they were God's favorite people and the most loved. And God used this experience in Acts chapter 10 to help Peter learn that his God was not only the God of the Jews, but he was the God of every human being who ever walked the face of this earth. And like Jesus said, for God so loved the world and not just the Jews that he gave his only son. And the truth is, this is something that we must understand if our prejudicial thinking, no matter how small we perceive it to be, is to be corrected. God loves everyone the same. He doesn't have favorites. He doesn't favor America, folks, over any other nation. And this is one thing that, that I just have to comment on. When we talk about the end times, Americans, we're so focused on what's happening in our nation, and we are such a small part of the end times. Do you get that? <laughs> yes, we're a superpower, but I'm telling you, you start reading the end times, I'm not sure where we fit in. I'm not sure if something happens to us or what, but there ain't a great mighty army coming from our direction. But we're so focused on America, we think this is it. We're we're the chosen ones. We are people who God loves like everyone else. Sorry, I had to get it off my chest. (laughs) He doesn't favor America over other countries. He doesn't favor one race over another. He doesn't favor men over women. He doesn't favor the rich over the poor. It doesn't matter who you are. God loves you as much as he loves anybody else. Anyone can know him. Anybody can experience his love. Anyone can be forgiven. Anyone can do his will. Anyone can talk to him in prayer. And anyone can live a life that honors him. 
I have shared with you many, 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 many times. I've shared with you a thousand times about God's unconditional love. Well, this morning, I hope that you learn that God's love is also universal and it is unbiased. God genuinely and passionately loves everyone the same, amen? All right, I'm glad you agree. Well, the second thing Peter had to learn to be cured of this prejudice was this. God judges all people the same. Peter said in verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. In other words, Jesus will judge everyone, both the living and those who have already passed on on that day of judgment, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their education or how good of a life they have lived. He will judge all equally. A while back, three American citizens conspired together to struggle, to, excuse me, to smuggle heroin into the United States from the country of Thailand. They were all caught, but they were caught in three different places. Try to wrap your mind around this. The person caught in the United States was given a two-year suspended sentence and sent to rehab. The one caught in Holland spent two years in a Dutch prison. And get this one, the one caught in Thailand was sentenced to death. The same crime with three different punishments because the idea of justice differs from nation to nation. And in America, folks, it differs from state to state. And in the courtroom, even from judge to judge. And we can argue about this until the cows come home over which judge or which nation is right. But the fact remains that there is tremendous inequity whenever we try to administer justice as human beings. Some have rightfully argued that in courtrooms across our nation that the rich have a distinct advantage over the poor, of which they do, because they can hire the best attorneys that can prolong something for 20 years before they ever end up spending any time in jail, if they even do. And many would say that whites get preferential treatment over people of color, and I would tend to agree with that as well. But praise the Lord, it does not work that way with God. Human courts may fail at administering justice, but please understand God judges everyone with the same absolute fairness, because we will all be judged equally one day by one thing and one thing only, whether or not we repented of our sin and accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We will not be judged by race. We will not be judged by nationality or by our denomination or by our intellect or by prestige or about how good of things that we have done. We will all be equally judged in response to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the first president that I was able to vote for, you can do the math now, you'll know my age, was Ronald Reagan. And because he was the first president, what, what did I miss? Somebody say, you're old? I don't even want any of your political comments in here, okay? 
I'm being prejudiced against you right now. No. Always got to be a heckler in the crowd. Because he was the first president of my adult life and because I voted for him, it really made me care for the man. I like Ronald Reagan. I don't know what you thought of him, but I thought he's the type of guy I'd want to hang out with. That's how I felt. When he died, I watched his funeral. And no matter where you fall on the political spectrum or however you felt about Ronald Reagan, you must admit the man was greatly admired. He was. In fact, the truth is I've never seen a nation more unified than when he was president than I've seen it in my lifetime. Uh, and obviously before me, I think we were even more unified before I was born. But in my lifetime, I've never seen us more unified than under his presidency. Leaders from all over the world came to pay this man their respects. He was loved by many because he did a great deal of good. But you must understand something. When, when President Reagan died, if he entered heaven, and I hope that he did, he got there the same way that you and I will. He got there based upon his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if he had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one is going to receive special treatment. We will be judged based on that one decision alone. So remember that. All people will be judged the same exact way. And as Christians, we cannot forget it. We are all sinners. We are equally dependent upon the grace of God. Amen? Harry Ironside tells a personal story about the death of his father. As his dad was dying, he kept muttering something, but the family couldn't quite understand what it was until finally they realized that the elder Mr. Ironside was thinking about this very vision that we were talking about that Peter had, this sheet that came down out of the sky full of different creatures. And what he was trying to say, or excuse me, what he was saying was a great sheet of, of wild beasts and and, and and he couldn't finish it. He couldn't, he couldn't finish the quote. And a friend bent over and he whispered to him, John, the Bible says creeping things. One translation of the Bible calls those animals creeping things. And Mr. Ironside on his deathbed replied, oh yes, this is how I got in. Just a poor, good for nothing, creeping thing. But I got in. I'm saved by the grace of God. It's his final words. So to be cured of this prejudice, Peter had to understand this basic truth that God judges all equally. Why? Because all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And this leads to the final truth that Peter had to understand. God offers salvation to everyone the same. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's arms are open wide for any sinner who will come to him in repentance. It's just like the old chorus goes, Whoever, whosoever will may come. And we know that Peter understood this truth because in verse 43, he said to Cornelius and the other Gentile seekers, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And years later, in 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter put it this way, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. So salvation is offered to anyone in the same way, 
in Jesus' name. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter how much money you have, how intelligent you are, how good looking you are. God offers you salvation through his son. So it's not who you are, it's who you know is what really matters. You know, every year up until 2014, the Apple Corporation sponsored a computer convention called Macworld. It's where thousands of of dealers and distributors and software developers met for the latest news and the latest updates in the computer industry. One year, the scheduled speaker at that event was none other than Steve Jobs, one of the founders of Apple. Well, in order to get into that convention, you needed a, uh, an ID badge, and, and uh, Steve Jobs happened to have left his in the hotel room that day, but he didn't realize it till he got to the center. He thought to himself, no problem. After all, I, I'm Steve Jobs. I own the company that's putting on this thing. Well, fortunately, the security guard didn't recognize him, and he refused to let the man in. So Job, one of Jobs' assistants started talking Besides, said, here, take mine. And when the security guard heard this, he threatened to have them both arrested. And after a fury of frantic phone calls, Steve Jobs' people were finally able to receive the, the head of security, this man's boss, who came to the main entrance. And Steve Jobs knew this man, and he was finally left, let in to speak at his own convention. But the point I'm trying to make is it didn't matter that he was the founder of the company, It didn't matter that this man was a gazillionaire and could have probably bought several countries in this world because if if Steve Jobs had not known that security guy's boss, he'd have never gotten through the door. In the same way, it is the same way with salvation. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or or a person sitting in the pew. None of that stuff matters. It's that you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. And if you don't know him today, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that, to receive the greatest gift you will ever receive. It's called salvation, salvation through Christ Jesus. As we prepare this morning to participate in Holy Communion together, what many people call the Lord's Supper. So I'd like the worship team to come forward. Also like for the ushers to come forward so we can pass out the communion emblems. Well, I just want to profess to you that I am thankful that I know the Lord Jesus Christ. I am thankful and I get overwhelmed when I think about and I consider what he did for me on the cross so that I could receive salvation. I didn't deserve it. There's no way I could possibly have earned it. It's a gift that comes from believing and accepting Jesus as Lord And Jesus commanded that we always remember what it was that he accomplished on our behalf on the cross. And he said, in fact, every time that we participate in communion as we are doing today, we're to do so in remembrance of him. And so this morning, we're gonna be faithful in following his command. See, communion is a time when we collectively, but even more so privately in our own hearts, remember the tremendous sacrifice that Jesus made for us. It's when we acknowledge that, when we acknowledge and not just acknowledge, but give thanks for Jesus atoning for our sin and providing us with a way to be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. It's a time when the story of the cross 
becomes far more than just a story, but we remember about this life-changing personal experience that we all have had. It must be the most important moment of one's life. And something that we just don't remember, but it's gotta be something we could never possibly ever forget. Because in that moment, we were redeemed. Jesus took away our sin. He took away our shame. He gave us life. He gave us an abundant life. He gave us a, a fulfilled life, a life that has purpose. Most importantly, he offers us eternal life in God's presence when our time on this earth is done. So you can see that it is a gift that must be treasured and remembered like what we are doing today. But before we take communion, it is important to mention what the Word of God has to say. It warns us about not participating in communion in what is called, what they say, an unworthy manner. It's found in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, and it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This scripture makes clear that before any of us participates in communion, we must all examine our hearts before the Lord in light of this very sacred moment. We must take the time to make sure that we are not personally harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts against someone else, or that we most importantly are not carrying unconfessed sin, and that we are not living a life contrary to what we have, the truth that we have learned since becoming a Christian. Because if so, if there is anything in our life that would bring judgment upon ourselves, then we must go to the Lord in prayer and we must take care of it before we participate so that none of us can be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So if you are here today and you have never received salvation, now is your opportunity. You've never asked Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. You can do so today. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have done. What matters is that Jesus is the only way to salvation. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then it goes on to say, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So we're gonna have a moment of quiet prayer. All you're gonna hear is the, the music playing softly behind me like it is right now. This is a time for each one of us to pray to the Lord in our own words and in our own way. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, then during this prayer time, tell him you acknowledge him as the son of God and the only way to God the Father. Recognize that he carried your sin on the cross and through his shed blood, he, he washed it away. He atoned for your sin. Acknowledge that he died in your place, but then he rose again three days later 
with resurrection power. And then you confess and you repent of your sin. And the Bible says that he is faithful to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and you become a new creation. When you do this, he gives you a fresh start, a new beginning. And and I don't know of anybody who doesn't need fresh starts. And then you'll understand personally what Jesus' sacrifice is all about because you've now experienced it and you can participate in communion in a worthy manner because you've just become a recipient of his amazing grace. And for those of you here today who are already in a redemptive relationship with Jesus, it is no different for you. You too, we must all examine ourselves and we must confess our unconfessed sin as well as we examine our hearts. So let's all take a moment and let's go to him in a time of silent prayer and reflection. Father, you've heard our words. Most importantly, you've read our hearts. Because our words cannot cover up what we're really feeling inside. We want to thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you for the promise of eternal life in God's presence. And today at this moment, Lord, we recommit our hearts and our lives to you. And we ask that you bless these communion emblems that we're about to receive. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke's gospel, chapter 26, verse 15, Jesus was having his last supper with his disciples, what was called the Passover meal. And he said this, he said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as you eat this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and battered body of Jesus that was beaten beyond recognition. And I want you to be reminded of what the scriptures say, that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, but also that by his stripes, we are healed. Receive your healing today. Eat of the bread. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. And as you drink from the cup this morning, I want you to be reminded of the precious blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ that poured out of his body for the atonement of your sin and my sin, and that has set you free. You may drink of the cup. Please stand with us as we sing together. Oh
give to you, Lord, again. Oh, the blood, that precious blood of Jesus, of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus, it washes you to bow your heads as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find as we dig, dig deep and we do our, our studying and, and do our history, Lord, that the many things that come to life in your word that sometimes we read over and we just kind of read over them and it doesn't mean a lot to us. But Father, what we've talked about today is a worldwide problem. It probably is worse today than it's ever been in history around the world. Maybe not so much in our nation, but even in our nation, Father. We have great division and prejudice plays a huge role in it. And as we discussed, prejudice can show itself in a variety of ways. And so Father, my prayer is that we wouldn't just learn about Simon Peter and the Jews understanding that you didn't have to become a Jew to become a Christian, but we would also understand that just like them, we must put aside our prejudice. If there's anything in our heart, Lord, that would be displeasing to you in the way that we treat others, whether it be a different color or a different socioeconomic level or just a different lifestyle, Lord, that we would be reminded that you love them equally as you love us. Father, let us never get puffed up or proud about the fact that we have been redeemed. We just had enough sense to ask you to redeem us. Where there's a lot of people out there, Lord, who are blinded to the truth and we are to be the truth purveyors. We are the ones to bring the truth to them and help them step across the line of salvation. But Lord, we can't do that if we're holding prejudice in our own heart. So I pray that you would reveal to us areas where maybe we are holding on to this malady and that we would pray about it and that we would release it and we would let it go and that we would look at everyone as you look at them and that is a loved child. So as we go our separate ways today, Father, I pray that we would go in the guidance and the direction of your Holy Spirit. You would direct us the things that we do, the places we go, even the conversations that we have, Lord, and I ask that those conversations would be ones that would build people up and not tear them down. I ask, Lord, that we would become bright light shining in a very dark world. And that bright light would be the love and the transforming power of Jesus that is within us and your spirit that resides within us. God, I pray that we would shine so brightly that people would come to us and ask us what it is about us that's different. And then you would open that door and we would walk through and share your goodness with them. And Father, as I always do, I pray that this week, you would give each one of us a divine appointment with another individual, someone who does not know you, where we could have a moment of discussion, a moment of clarity, where we could shed light on who you are and how good you are to us. Father, I pray that when those moments come, we would not shy away from them, but we would walk boldly through them because as we discussed today, and as we've discussed throughout this series, you go before us and we're never alone during those moments. So I pray that you would use us and I pray as we leave here today and go our separate ways, you would keep us safe 
from sickness and disease. You would keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us so that we can come together as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. And as we go our separate ways, Lord, I pray that we would go in your love and that that love would be seen and it would be tangible for all to experience. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.